while you are, are turning there, I'll just kind of share of something that I heard that uh, occurred in our community recently. Apparently, there were two ladies that were in line at the grocery store, and they were talking about different things they were involved in. Apparently, the one lady was a member of a, another church in town, and she was talking about, I guess, their new pastor, and talking about how, how wonderful he was, that he had the ability to talk for half an hour on almost any subject. And the, the other lady, I understand, as I hear, is, was a member here, and she just kind of shook her head and said, well, that's nothing. Our pastor can easily talk for an hour, and I'm not sure he needs a subject. So, <laughs> and you know who you are. All right, I made the whole thing up. Um, but I promise not to talk anywhere near an hour this morning. We're going to focus our attention on just a couple of verses uh, that Kara has already read for us. I'm going to read for the context again, Matthew 28, verses 1 uh, through 8. And as we come to this passage, particularly in verses 6 and 7, what we have there is the first Easter sermon ever preached, proclaimed by the angel who was the messenger from heaven. And in that message, he has four important words for us to consider. As he's speaking them to the women who came to the tomb, these words are also applicable to us because the words that he spoke to them are also the essence of the message that we receive and that we live in light of. So now, as we come to the text, before we read it, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we do come uh, this day give, giving thanks and praise to you as we've heard testimony after testimony of your grace, whether they are the testimonies of those uh, from ancient times or testimony that we declare ourselves and the testimony not only of Heather, but our own stories as well. As we come to your word now, we pray that you would speak to our lives, and that you would open our eyes, that those who are believers would rejoice and be strengthened in faith, that those who are skeptical uh, would be challenged to look clearly at the evidence of the reality of Christ's life, his death, and resurrection, and those who are in denial would have their hearts open, that they may consider the truth that the God of all creation loves us more than we can possibly imagine. Father, help us to understand these words, that we not only know them, but that we would be a people who would embody them to your glory and to the joy that we find when our lives, our stories, are enveloped in your story. We pray this in the name of Christ, who is the Word incarnated, who has set us free. Amen. Matthew chapter 28, begin our reading in verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord had descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the, the guards had trembled and had become like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he lay, and then go quickly to tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, 
he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and with great joy and ran to tell the disciples. May the Lord bless us and give us understanding from his word. It's a simple story that we celebrate, but on that first morning, the women made their way to the tomb where they were greeted by a messenger from heaven who gave them very simple instructions as he declared to them that Jesus had risen from the dead. And in his instructions, he gives them four distinct words, come, see, go, and tell. These were for them to come and to experience the reality of the promises of Christ, to come, to approach, to look for themselves, and then with the evidence of that too, they are set free to then go and live their lives and to declare what they now knew to be the reality. And yet, wrapped up in those four words is also the essence of the message that we who are believers, we who are celebrating this day, also experience as we are invited into the story of Christ on this side of his resurrection. The first word is come. See, Jesus says to a world that is of weary people, come to me, all of you who are tired and burdened, come and I will give you rest. See, while the women were invited to come into the tomb, Jesus had come in order to invite us to come to him that we might rest in him. And he's speaking to anyone who finds themselves tired, at least from time to time, people who are weary as they look at the world that just incessantly keeps on coming back. You may have it pushed back for a time, may feel like you've overcome it, but it keeps coming, just like the waves of the ocean. It inevitably will weary you and wear you down. And to its People like that, people like you and me, that Jesus says, come, come to me, and if you will believe and rest in me, you will find rest and you will find renewal. That's the essence of Christianity, and it makes it different than almost everything else in this entire world. Jesus, God incarnated, comes and says, you come to me. That's not always the case. In fact, the reality of religion almost inevitably tells us, stay away. All religions say, essentially, stay away. They may call you to believe, they may call you to reform, but they always have a separation between the individual and the object that they are seeking to worship or the object or the God that seems to be dictating. For instance, there is a group of people that lives in the mountains in Israel known as the the Druze people, D-R-U-Z-E. They're rather obscure, and and there's not a lot of them, but they live in the mountains, and there's not a whole lot that's known about them, but one thing that is known, at least, is is their appearance. The women tend to wear long black dresses, and they wear a veil to conceal their faces. And the men all have long handlebar mustaches, and they wear floppy hats and baggy pants. That's pretty much all that's known about them. Now, what do these people believe? No one knows. They don't even know. There's only a handful of people, five or six priests in the Druze religion who have been given access to to the holy book of the Druze. And they won't tell anybody what it says. And this has been going on for centuries. Day after day, year after year, the people just listen to the priests who tell them what to do and how to behave, and they just go about their duty, doing exactly what the priests tell them to do, 
with very little understanding of what it is that they're supposed to believe. In fact, about the only thing that we know that they do believe is that there will be a Messiah that is going to come. And that that Messiah one day, when the Messiah, the real Messiah comes, he will be born of a virgin, a virgin male, which apparently is why all of the men wear the baggy pants. They all go around hoping that they will be the one chosen to give birth to the promised Messiah. Sounds painful to me. But they, this is, this is, where, this is what, what they believe. And year after year, the priests won't tell them because they do not believe the people in as a whole are holy enough or can handle the truth. And so the priests hold on to the truth. The people behave and they worship and they obey. But they're told, stay away. That's the nature of religion. Even the temple in Jesus' time was set up in a way to keep us away. So the temple was set up into various courts around the actual temple and the inner chamber. And those who were not Jews, they just stayed out. Those who were just the normal everyday Jew, they could kind of get in the gates, but they couldn't get into the main event. There was also a court for women, godly women, who could go but no further. And then those who were the holy men could go a little bit further. But no one except for the high priest was able to enter into the presence of God, into the holy of holy chambers. And even the high priest was only allowed to go in once a year. And before he went in, he had to prepare himself through a long list of ritual activities in order to cleanse himself from his sin to enable him to go into that temple, into that presence of God so that he could offer the sacrifice on the riffraff that were the rest of the people that were like you and me. Now, one thing we need to understand is that God set it up this way, and there's a reason for that that is good reason, but nevertheless, it, it does play into the tendency that we have, that people have, and just kind of thinking that we need to stay away. See, the temple was set up in that way because God is holy, and he will not tolerate, he cannot tolerate anything that is impure, imperfect, unholy in his presence. And so, therefore, people were allowed to approach to a degree but stay away, but only the one who was perfect and purified was able to come into God's presence. And so it's a good thing for us to understand God's holiness, that we don't take him lightly and just kind of be like a lot of, well, contemporary songs that sing, you know, God is my bud. That is such an irreverent aspect that diminishes the reality of the holiness and the glory and the greatness of our God. And yet it's because that is true and the gospel is true that perhaps we remain confused. Each year, the, holy, the high priest would go in to the holy, holy of holies chamber to offer his sacrifice after having purified himself. Now, one thing that many of you know, others perhaps are not aware of, is that the high priest would also have a, a rope tied to his leg so that when he went in to offer the sacrifice, if he was not holy enough, if the Lord had determined that he was still in his sin and his sacrifice that he brought was not acceptable, not only was the sacrifice rejected, but the high priest himself would die. And the people would stay outside kind of waiting, waiting in anticipation, wondering if the sacrifice would be acceptable. And they wouldn't know until the priest emerged and seeing his white robes walking out on his own strength. If the sacrifice had not been taken and the priest died, the reason for the rope was so they could haul him out of there, not leave him in there to rot for the sake of the year, because that would also be a pollution in the presence of the holy God. And so they would pull him out, realizing they still had the weight of their sins upon them. 
and that another year would pass before another sacrifice could be offered, that they would not have to live with the weight of their sin. The temple is set up in a sense to say, stay away. And yet Jesus says, come. I understand the nature of the stay away mindset. Even in my day-to-day life, there are times in my life where I don't necessarily feel particularly close to God. Whether there are specific sins that I'm wrestling with in my life or whether it's just feeling of apathy, not an excitement of coming into God's presence, when those times happen or if things are going not the way that I want them to go, my tendency is to try to ratchet up my disciplines until I reach a certain level where I feel comfortable that, okay, now I can approach God. It's foolishness as if my own efforts, I can ever get to that point, but that's the way I tend to feel. I just am hesitant to really approach God or to engage God when I know I'm less than perfect. And so I feel a need to stay away. And only when I feel worthy do I feel like I can approach him. And so there may be an increase of the amount of time I spend in prayer, more time in personal study, more time in other disciplines. I don't have the same situation that most of you have, so I don't know what I would do in terms of church attendance. Most of you would notice if I didn't show up on a Sunday. You would be done a whole lot faster, but you would know that I wasn't here. And so I don't know what it would be like to increase, but I imagine if this was not part of my regular routine, I would increase the church attendance as well, thinking that's what's going to help. Because until I feel good enough, I feel that stay away. But Jesus says, come. And the good news of this day with the resurrection is that Jesus, when he died, at the moment that he died, the curtain in the temple that actually divided people, segregated people, was torn from top to bottom. What God was declaring at that point is open house. Anyone who trusted in my son and his death for your sin, because he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. If you trust in what he has done for you, then you can come before the holy and true God. You don't need a mediator. You have one in Jesus. You have been forgiven and you have been set free. The whole curtain being torn says, come to the holy God. Unlike the times during the days that the high priest would have to go in and the people would wait and wonder whether or not the sacrifice had been taken, waiting until they saw the uh, priest emerge. Our high priest has emerged from the grave. And so we know that the sacrifice that he gave, which was his own body and his own blood, has been accepted. And we know and we celebrate just as they did when the priest arrives because Christ is arisen. And he rises and says, every promise is true. So now come, come to me and come to God who I am God, but come through me and you will see the Father. Second word that we see is see. Since the angel was speaking to the women, he says, see, in order to come in and look, look at the evidence, look at the reality. In John's account that we saw earlier this morning, it's an interesting thing that the reading in the English didn't necessarily show us. We recognize the the scene that took place is you had two disciples, John, who's not actually named in the account, but he never names himself in his book. He just refers to himself either as the other one or the one who was loved. 
he and Peter were running to the tomb, and apparently John was, I don't know if he was younger, but he was apparently the, the more athletic, he was the, the more nimble of foot, and so he blew past Peter, and he arrives first, and the, the picture is that this is the gate of the tomb, Peter arrives, and he stops at the front of the tomb, and he's standing in the doorway, and he is looking in, and the pastor says that he saw, and the Greek word there is blepo, and the easiest way to think of that is think of, you know, when you see something, kind of a blip. You see all the things, that, you know, you can see with your eyes. You may even be able to describe, but you're just seeing. And then while John was still at the door, Peter comes in and not quite as fast, perhaps huffing and puffing, but a whole lot brawnier, shoves John out of the way. Doesn't say that, but that's my impression. Shoves him out of the way and has burst right into the middle of the tomb. John was kind of, you know, cautious. Peter wasn't cautious at all. He, he goes into the tomb, and he stands there, and it says that he saw. And the Greek word there is different than the word of what John saw standing at the door. John saw a blip. He saw all the things, the evidence that was there before him. But when Peter walked in, the word there is from the Greek is theorao, from which we get the word theory. In essence, Peter walked in. When he stepped in, it wasn't just kind of seeing and taking it in. He began looking and began pondering and began thinking, could it be true? Could everything Jesus has said be real? And he began to understand that just as he saw the grave clothes there empty, that doesn't mean that there, was, that there was any shenanigans that had taken place. He recognized what you and I recognize when we see a cocoon that no longer has anything in it. We don't think, oh, the thing died. We think the thing is alive. And Peter understood that because the grave clothes no longer contained the body, Christ was alive just as he said. He didn't understand, but he understood the promise, and he began to form the theory. He saw, not just with his eyes, but also with his mind. Then the text says that John came in finally, and he also saw, saw again. But the word is used as a third different Greek word used for saw at that point. And the word that is used at that point is iden, which doesn't really mean a whole lot other than, you know, we might think of it as from which we would get the word idea. John was no longer just seeing physically. John was understanding spiritually and recognizing the implications for him personally. Even moving beyond the theory that Peter had, he was now beginning to get the big idea. He was beginning to understand that Jesus who said that his life had to be sacrificed, but on the third day he would rise again, it happened. And John knew the big ideas, everything Jesus said, everything that Jesus had promised, it was true. He was no longer bound by his sin. He was set free third word that we see that the angel says to the women is this, go. Don't linger at the tomb. And that's good advice for us as well, not only on this Easter Sunday, but every day of our lives, because people have a tendency to, to just kind of linger at the grave. Part of that may be from religious tradition. Part of it is just our, our own instinct. But even in religious tradition, through the church calendar, we see a number of people throughout the world celebrating or observing the 40 days leading up to the Passion Week as this period of Lent where they celebrate it by giving up goodies and mourn the reality of their own sin that caused or necessitated that Christ's life would be taken from him unjustly or that he volunteered to take his life, though he deserved not to die, but to live. And then after 40 days of kind of fasting and feeling bad, we have the one day, Easter, that we celebrate. 
The promise is true. We're set free. But for a lot of people, they, they look at this and say, okay, 40 days of feeling bad for one day of feeling good. It just kind of depressing if you think about it. But it misses the entire point, not only of the gospel and of this day and the implications of this day, it really even misses the point of the entire church calendar because there is something good and beautiful and necessary for us to understand, take a time to understand the reality of the depth of our sinfulness, our weakness, our brokenness, and our need. But it's not a 40 to 1 deal. See, what happened at the day of the resurrection is everything in history changed. Even at that time, the earliest believers who continued to celebrate God, his law, and his promises as they gathered together in the synagogue every Saturday would then begin to meet as those who were believers in the, in the risen Jesus Christ, and they would meet and celebrate him on the Lord's Day. They would meet two days in the weekend. Now, over time, the Jewish uh, people began to kind of kick these new believers out. They weren't welcome in the synagogue anymore. And so they continued to meet in their worship day. The Christian Sabbath became the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. Every Lord's Day, one day every week, which is a reminder to us that we do not celebrate the effects and the implications of the resurrection one day a year. We celebrate it constantly through all year. We are reminded both of our brokenness and of his grace. We celebrate it and have a party every single Sunday as a remembrance and a celebration of what Christ has done for us. The women were told, go, don't linger, and we are told as well to go. And we may wonder, where do we go? And I suspect that we would be a lot like the, when Jesus told uh, the woman who was caught in adultery. So most of you probably know the story, but the religious leaders who were preparing to stone her, and while she was standing there still naked, fearful, wondering what's going to happen, Jesus not only intervened, but when everybody laughed, he says to her at the end of that time, go and sin no more. Now, where was she supposed to go? She was just supposed to go on with her life. And when you and I are told to go, we've already come, we've already seen, where are we to go? Each of us goes in different directions. You have different callings, you have different home places, you have different works, you have different friends, different families, but you go, not forgetting what has taken place, but wherever you go, the reality of Christ and his promises go with us because there is no barrier, there is no place where they do not have effect. But we go on with our lives. We don't just linger and we don't just huddle to celebrate, but the reality of Christ goes with us everywhere we go. And by that effect, we bring transformation to our community and to the nations, which is God's plan. And the reality of how that takes place is the last word that we see, tell. See, these women were to go tell the disciples, and, and I, in one sense, we think, okay, but we need to go tell the unbelieving world. Well, the, ultimately, they did that as well. But we're reminded that the telling is not limited to the unbelievers, but the fact that they go tell the disciples is because we as believers always need to be reminded of the reality of the gospel because we are prone to forget or we are prone to replace it, at least functionally in our lives. And so as we share the reality of the gospel with one another, we are building up the gospel in uh, believers in Christ. At the same time, we're called to go tell the people who do not know or do not understand, who have not heard it clearly. And they are all around us because there are people that are living in different parts of the world, whether it's Iran or whether it's in Indiana, whether it's in Washington, D.C., or on the peninsula. There are people who believe that they must do something in order to earn God's favor. They need to be better. They need to sacrifice. They need to suffer, experience punishment for their sins and the wrongs that they have done. 
and they have missed the reality of the promise of the gospel that was fulfilled this day that these women were told about when they got to the tomb. Jesus has already taken the punishment upon himself. You who believe are set free. Not only are you free from the punishment and the guilt, you are declared righteous in Christ. His righteousness is now counted as yours as you believe. And that is the gospel itself, and that is what we're told to go and tell. So the women were told to go and tell he is risen, but he is risen carries implications. That he died. That he died for our sin. That he lived. He lived the life we should have lived. But he gave his life willingly for us so that we might live and live free and live in joy, living in him. The four simple words of the message of Easter proclaimed in the very first Easter sermon. Come, whoever you are, wherever you've been, whatever you've done, see that the tomb is empty and that all of the promises are therefore true. Go. Go about your life. Go rejoicing. <coughs> there is no condemnation. The price has been paid in full. You are free. And tell. Tell someone. Believer or unbeliever, tell that Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let me pray. Father, we give praise to you for revealing to us life that came from the grave, that we might have life that pulls us out of the pits. We ponder this, we proclaim this, we study this, we sometimes assume or minimize this. I pray on this day where we've heard multiple testimonies. Can we consider the first sermon that came from the divine sent messenger? That we would be a people who not only know what was said, but we are a people who come to you. Consider the evidence as we see. We go about our lives and we declare your praises in your presence in the presence of the multitudes. Father, may we be a people who not only hear and know, but people who do and rejoice as well. I pray this in the name of Jesus and for his sake.